Hello, this is Tommy Moe, and you're listening to the Snowbrains Podcast. Welcome to the Snowbrains Podcast, where it's my job to interview the most intelligent people in the snow sports industry and pass their fascinating knowledge onto you, our listeners. I'm your host, Miles Clark. I'm a professional free skier, a professional mountain guide, a UC Berkeley molecular cell biology graduate, the founder and CEO of Snowbrains, and once when independently guiding 18,700 foot El Pico de Orizaba in Mexico, I had a client get high altitude pulmonary edema on a training day at over 15,000 feet. We confirmed the diagnosis after sundown. I ran down to the big hut at 14,000 feet, saw there was a Jeep parked there, burst inside and woke up all 50 climbers shouting about how I needed the owner of the Jeep to take us down or my client would die. A local mountain guide named Oso, or Bear in English, calmly woke up, drove us down the mountain in the black night his eyes shifting and searching for a ghost named La Anciana, the old one, and told us some of the most harrowing ghost stories I've ever heard. Thankfully, my client survived and made a full recovery. Today's Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Scott Sports. Technology, innovation, and design is the name of the game, and that's exactly what Scott Sports is. It's in their DNA. Skiing is about testing yourself, seeing the possibilities that you're presented with and pushing yourself to seize the greatest challenges. Scott Sports has the gear to help you do just that. To learn more, check out scottsports.com and see what real innovation looks like. Today's Snow Rains podcast is brought to you by Tamarack Resort. Nestled in the West Central Mountains of Idaho, Tamarack boasts 1,100 acres of terrain, 2,800 vertical feet, and an independent spirit and community vibe unmatched in the West. My guest today is Tommy Moe. Tommy made the U.S. ski team at age 16. He started competing on the World Cup at 20. Tommy was the first American male ski racer to win two medals at one Olympics, one gold and one silver, both at the Lillehammer Norway Winter Olympics in 1994. He wore a cowboy hat at the gold medal ceremony. He went to three Olympics, 92 in France, 94 in Norway, and 98 in Japan. Tommy was on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 1994. He was five-time national champion. Tommy podiumed seven times in the World Cup and skied in three world championships. He was on the World Cup for nine years and on the U.S. ski team for 12. After his impressive ski racing career, Tommy co-founded a world-class Alaska heli-skiing company named Tordrillo Mountain Lodge in a roadless, remote zone in Alaska. Tommy is a lead heli ski guide, and his company hosts some of the best skiers and riders in the world, including Travis Rice and Cody Townsend. Tommy was elected to the U.S. National Ski Hall of Fame in 2003. Hello, Tommy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. How are you today, man? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot, Miles. It's a pleasure to be with Snowbrains and uh, just kind of getting ramped up for winter up here in Wyoming. Nice, man. Well, it's an honor to have you. When did you ski last? You know, that's a, a good question. Actually, I went down to Colorado last week with my daughter. I have uh, oh, nice. two daughters. They're uh, both ski racers. And uh, the older one's name is Taylor. 
and uh, we went down to Copper Mountain, Colorado, and we hit Loveland and also A Basin. We had a really good time though. Just it was her first time actually down in Colorado for a oh, for nice. Jackson Hole Ski Club camp, and uh, yeah, she was she's fired up. Nice man, I love it. Well, tell me, you've done so much. Uh, I really want to dig into your ski racing career, what you learned there, your Alaska heli skiing, Jackson ski guiding, all of it. So we're going to start off with these rapid fire questions, and then we're going to drill down to some of your deeper stuff. How many days do you ski per year? I usually average about 120 to 140 days per season. (laughs) Holy shit. Wow, man. That's a ton. And uh, how many of those do you think are, are heli days up in Alaska? I'd say up in Alaska at Tordrillo Heli, I probably get like 40 or 50 days total because we, we do <laughs> operations in March and April. And then uh, the whole month of June, I'm up there skiing corn. How many days do you, and snowfields. Yeah. How many days do you get in June? We start June 10th and go till Ju- July 5th about. So Whoa. they're five day trips. So we get, uh, you know, six or eight, 10 runs a day in the summer in the corn. And, uh, you know, we got the wind shirts on and try to do a lot of uh, multi-sports. I knew I was going to be jealous on this, on this podcast, but it's, it started way too early, Tommy. So, so just for our listeners to think, think about that. So think about 50 heli skiing days per year, every year for how many years now? Oh, since 97 overcast <laughs> and I started, uh, you know, Kings and corn up in Alaska. And then, you know, we moved to a newer lodge in 2006 and shoot, what is that? 15 years now, a lot of heli skiing in the summertime. And, uh, I love it because it's just a great family trip and, you know, we go back and do some rafting and fishing and, and the corn snow is pretty mellow and people just love it. It's, like, it's more like 25 years, man. I, I'm, I'm blown away. I, I will get into that more later. I, I'm, I love being in Alaska. And if I get to go heli skiing, it's amazing. There's so much innuendo and facets and good and bad of that. And you're going to help us get through all that in a little bit. What's your biggest accomplishment in skiing? Oh, you know, if I went back to my ski career, I'd have to say the Olympics for sure. I think, you know, as a skier, you know, Bodie Miller has won Olympic medals and we've had so many great skiers throughout the years, you know, Phil Mayer and, and Darren Rawls. And, and, uh, when I look back on my career, I think the you know, the fact that I won the Olympic downhill when I was 23 years old was definitely my biggest accomplishment. And then four days later on my birthday, I got the silver medal in the Super G and uh, I surprised myself and probably the rest of the ski world. (laughs) Absolutely insane. Only six American men have won gold medals in the Olympics, only two in downhill. And you're one of those guys. And we'll definitely get more into that. What's your biggest accomplishment in life? My family. Definitely my, uh, my wife, Megan Garrity. We've been married together now for 15 years. And did you meet her? Was she also on the U.S. ski team? Yeah, we started dating early 20s on the World Cup, and and then we got married kind of early 30s, and and wow. uh, yeah, Megan and I have been together for like almost 30 years. That is a gorgeous ski romance, man. I love this story. <laughs> but, but I think the biggest accomplishment, though, definitely is just the family aspect, my kids, my two daughters, and, uh, you know, figuring out how to live in Wyoming and, and being able to juggle, you know, the, the lifestyle of, of being a ski guide and, and uh She's, she's treats me so well though, because, you know, I'm out the door in the morning, most of the time, you know, kind of busy during the holidays, guiding and skiing with guests. And, uh, but it works out when I'm home, I'm home. And and when I'm in the mountains, I'm in the mountains. Love it. How do you define yourself? I'd have to say that, you know, one of the best things about Tommy Mo is probably just being optimistic and positive. I think a lot of that came from ski racing. I was one of those guys 
traveling around Europe when I was younger. And a lot of the, a lot of my teammates were like, this sucks. The food sucks. <laughs> I'm burnt out on traveling. And I, I was like the guy that was like, this ain't so bad. I kind of like it over here. I'm, you know, I like these hotels and, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, some of the funky breakfasts and, uh, you know, traveling around. And I think it might be a gift because not everybody idols at such a high level of happiness. You know, you idol, I think at like an eight out of 10 on the happiness scale. And that's just your regular. So I think when you have a bad day, you're maybe down to a seven. So, so that, that's, that's, that's a gift, man. I, not everybody has that. Yeah. I'm usually pretty, I'm pretty stoked you know, just to get out the door in the morning and get in the mountains. And, uh, I'm kind of like a bear in the wilderness. I, I just like to keep moving and, and checking stuff out and, and, uh, smelling the air and, and checking out the mountains. And, you know, the biggest part for me now is just, you know, showing people a really great time in the hills. And my favorite thing is definitely skiing with my, my daughters. That's the best part because I'm able to like be the coach and spotter now. So I oftentimes, you know, I'm like, I kind of help them size up some jumps and, and, uh, check the landings and, and, and now they're just like ripping a lot of the back country and, and, uh, we get out and have a great time and in, in here in Jackson and, Wherever we end up, we're always out ripping around. So good, man. Where's your favorite place to ski? I'd have to say Jackson Hole, just because, you know, I moved here when I was 24. When I was on the U.S. ski team, I actually interviewed for a job after the Olympics to become an ambassador at Jackson Hole. And and I uh, moved here and I just fell in love with this place. I came here when I was super young, though, when I was a teenager and raced at Snow King Mountain. And then also skied, free skied over at... Um, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, and I just fell in love with it. Originally, I grew up skiing in Montana and skied at the Whitefish Mountain Resort with my dad, my brother, and my family, and have great memories from from skiing up there in the good in the deep powder and skiing with my dad. And, you know, it was just a perfect place to grow up up in Montana. But then I moved up to Alaska. Well, when I was in high school, and one of my first days, I remember flying into Anchorage when I was 12 years old, was looking out the window. And I was actually looking out the window at the Tordrillo Mountains, and I was like, "Holy mackerel! Wow. Those glaciers and massive peaks!" And uh, from that day on, I pretty much had a love affair with Alaska. Well, I think it's safe to say that uh, you, you love Jackson Hole, you love that area, the Tetons, you love that Montana area and the Northern Rockies, and you love Alaska, that Tordrillo Mountains, and, and the Chugach as well. Oh yeah, you know, there's a lot of history there, you know. When I, when I made the U.S. ski team, I was 16 years old. You know, I made it at, at, a, at an event in Colorado. I was, I was starting like dead last in this, in this U.S. national NORAM race. And, and uh, I came down and got like sixth place. Super surprised. Everybody was surprised. And they were like, oh, Tommy Moe got lucky. He got a tailwind. There's no way he's going to do it again tomorrow. And then the next day, same thing. Started at the back of the pack. Came down and got like fourth place that qualified me for the top hundred in the world Whoa. In, in, in the downhill ranking. So I was 16 years old. I had like 32 downhill points and all of a sudden they're like, okay, we'd love you to come to Europe to train with the U S <laughs> men's downhill team. And uh, sure wow. enough, I flew to Europe, you know, in October and I was hanging out with Bill Johnson and Doug Lewis and Mike Brown and Andy Chambers and pretty intimidated 17 year old kid. And Doug Lewis was awesome. And Mike Brown, they were kind of my mentors and they're like, yeah, Mo, this is how you need to do it. And, this is where we're setting up on this turn. And, uh, it was just a great experience. And, uh, that next season I started racing world cup. I think my first downhill race was in Garmisch Partenkirchen and, and I ended up, you know, getting my wow. butt kicked. I got beat by five seconds, but I made it down the thing and, and uh, <laughs> paid my dues. 
Well, I love that uh, you were basically underdog and people didn't expect you to do that. And you surprised everyone because you did that again in 94 when you won the gold medal. And so that was really, you know, that's been part of your thing is, you know, people underestimate you and you just freaking crush. And, you know, you mentioned Bill Johnson and I'm so curious about him. You know, he won the gold medal in the downhill in uh, 84, I believe. And I think you guys are the only two to ever win it. What was Bill Johnson like? He's a larger than life character. People talk about, you know, he said that he used to steal cars and get paid a million dollars per race. And he just, he had this crazy all out style. Tell us a little bit about Bill. Yeah. Bill Johnson. I mean, he, he was one of the only Olympic downhill skiers that called his race. He said, he said, it's a race for second place in Sarajevo in 84. And uh, that's a pretty bold statement. I think he had Franz Klammer calling him a nose picker. Oh my God. I love it. And then he won. And he, he called it, you know, Bill that year, he had some rocket ship downhill skis. His ski technician was, was a guy named Blake Lewis. And uh, you know, Bill had the red sleds that are like 220 downhill, you know, rocket ships. And, uh, you know, I think that season Bill won Aspen, he won Whistler, he won Vangen and he won the Olympics. So, wow. I mean, what a season, but the first time I met Bill, I went up to that ski camp in Austria up in Countertall and I was, I was in the lodge at the bottom and I kind of saw him from afar and I was like, Whoa, that's Bill Johnson. And <laughs> he, he came over to me and he's like, so Tommy Mo, are you golden or what? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. I was like, well, I was like, no Bill, but you are. Uh, that good response because he was yeah, and uh it was just kind of a wild time you know and, the, and it was right after his you know his win so he had his own car and 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 uh you know he's like chewing copenhagen and playing video games and he wasn't really the best example and right. and uh you know bill you know he tried to make a comeback and i think it was 2001 and had a horrific injury up oh, in montana yeah. at a u.s national event and uh yeah, he just got hurt. You know, he was 40 years old trying to make a comeback. Whoa. It's not a very good idea. No, it's a little late, I think. That's true. Yeah. What would you do if you couldn't ski? Ooh, I think, you know, for me, I, I love gravity sports. If I couldn't ski, I'd probably be mountain biking or kayaking full time. But if I couldn't ski, I think I'd probably live down in Utah, maybe Southern Utah or somewhere where the mountain biking was great. And, um, you know, if I could never ski again, I'd probably just have to find another sport where I could get those aggressions out. And, uh, the great thing about skiing that I really enjoy is just the fact that you're in control of of everything that's happening. It's like, you can turn your brain off, start making turns down the mountain and and you just don't think it's all reaction. So you're on, for me, oftentimes I'm kind of on autopilot. So I'm just looking ahead at the terrain and the rocks and the trees and kind of looking for the soft spots to make a turn. And, uh, I just, you know, even for me, you know, I'm 51 years old now and I still feel like a little kid when I'm on the slopes. I love that, man. And it, and it really shows. What scares you the most in the mountains? I'd probably have to say avalanches for sure are uh, the biggest factor. Sometimes, you know, I'll wake up in the morning and see the Alpen glow and and I just know right away it's going to be a really good day. And, and, uh, and then there's other times where you're out in the mountains and things are cracking out and you got like super unstable upside down snowpack and you can see a lot of avalanches that happened you know right after the storm and that's when it's good just to kind of step back and be like I'm good I don't need to expose myself or anybody else and this we'll just let it heal up and you know that's one thing I learned about about avalanche control and oh just being safe is you know let the snow sit for a day or two before you you know you tee it up or at least you know, if, if it's super high danger, just kind of stay below the 30 degree angle for, 
for a while until you know you feel that the snowpack set up and but definitely avalanches again rocks are really scary um you know early season i don't really want to dry dock hit a rock or a stump or a or a log or something like that. So I like all that. Yeah. And avalanches are, are definitely terrifying. And uh, that's, that's definitely something that is always freaking me out out there. What's the scariest race course on earth? Kitzbühel, the Honenkamm running in, in Europe is definitely the, the sketchiest course. It's um, I remember my first time I went to Kitzbühel, I was uh, 18 years old. And I, as I was driving into the town of Kitzbühel with my ski technician, Willie Wiltz, we looked up at the track and it, there was a ribbon of snow where they'd like the Austrian army had shoveled snow and made the track viable for the race, but everything outside of it was totally Brown. And I was like, Oh my God, this is going to be, this is going to be exciting. And sure enough, (laughs) we get up there and we're looking at the course the first day and it was like super soft and kind of raining out. And it was just like the Austrian army had just like sidestepped the whole thing. So it was basically just like a washboard and, brown granular snow and um in that race i had two teammates with me bill hudson from squaw valley and eric keck from vermont and uh back then they had a snow seed so they'd oftentimes draw like two people from the last seed to run first to break in the track and anyway bill hudson went out of the starting gate and he went off the mouse fall you go to the starting gate and it's like 40 degrees you make a left turn and then a right turn and then a left turn and then you fly off this this super rad mouse of folly kind of blind roller. Uh, you Whoa. Know, but yeah. You fly like 150 feet off the thing. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Billy Hudson goes off the thing and his direction was wrong. So like in downhill racing, oftentimes you have to kind of have the, the right direction, which would, would be 12 o'clock in this case. And anyway, Billy came off it and was angled at one o'clock. Ooh. He flew over the fence back then. They, all they had was a along the course and he flew over the fence and ended up cartwheeling through the rocks and trees and oh god yeah he had a had like a, a tbi he, oh no yeah and so he's in the hospital and then eric keck another american got in the starting gate and he did the exact same thing and he didn't Whoa. have quite as much of an injury but he ended up you know busting his skis and uh and then the court my coach radioed up and he's like tommy just Make sure you throw them sideways before the, the mouse fall. I just make it down. <laughs> yeah. But I definitely, I think the night before I had a sleepless night. So I was pretty just sketched out on the whole thing. The first year I went to Kitzbühel, but then I went back a few times later and the snow was way better. You know, it was like cold and clear and fast. And uh, I had some decent finishes at Kitzbühel. I think I got fourth was my best finish and then I got sixth another time and wow and then in then eighth place and uh yeah the Honenkamm it's just the coolest event because there's a hundred thousand drunk Austrians it's rowdy partying and skiing and everybody's just so fired up about the, it's like the Super Bowl of skiing it's awesome wow well that's great yeah we, we get that answer a lot from ski racers here that the Honenkamm is the one and it's in Austria to be clear and you mentioned TBI earlier and that's a traumatic brain injury and so I can just imagine Billy tomahawking off course through rocks and dirt and trees. Jesus, that is brutal, man. What do you love most in the mountains? Oh, you know, I, I love, I love the morning, you know, when you get up early and you got the mountains just gleaming, you got the Alpen glow. And I just love the fact that when you know it's going to be a good day and you have the right crew and, you know, you get up there early and, and you, you kind of feel it out your first run and, and, uh, and you can just kind of keep ramping it up. That's the cool part about skiing is 
depending on people's ability, oftentimes, sometimes people just want to trophy hunt and ski like the biggest, nastiest, you know, steep couloir that they can get their skis in. And other times you have people that just want to ski, you know, kind of mellower runs. And um, for me, I love all aspects. I mean, being a heli ski guide in Alaska and then working here in Jackson and then being a dad and uh, being an ex-racer, there's not really one part of the sport I don't like. I think the best part for me being in the mountains is just the fresh air, the views, you know, sharing your, your stoke level with all your buddies and laughing and having a good time. What's the funniest accent or, or just funniest story that you've had in the mountains? <laughs> you know, there's a, we have a run up in, in the Tordrillos. It's called Wilkie's Wall. And uh, the first year we started doing Kings and Corn up in the Tordrillos, we, uh, we were kind of loose back then. And, but we were partying a lot with our guests and, you know, just kind of cowboy Western kind of deal. And anyway, love it. We were out skiing. We were out skiing with this guy, Graham Wilkie. And he, uh, he was skiing in shorts this one day and we got up <laughs> kind of on a steeper head wall with, it was kind of a couloir, I guess. And anyway, I was like, yeah, go for it, Graham, you're ready to go. And he starts skiing down the thing. And, uh, he was skiing in shorts, which was kind of crazy that day. But anyway, he took a fall and he ended up, he ended up taking a slide and kind of getting caught in a little smaller kind of slough avalanche thing. And it ripped his shorts off. No. So when he got to the bottom, <laughs> all his junk was hanging out and his short, oh, his ass was hanging out. And, and, uh, ever since that day, you know, 20 <laughs> plus years ago, now we call it Wilkie's wall just because of that story. Oh man. That, that's the kind of story that sticks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ripped his shorts off. It was a good one. Whoa. I love it. That is a good one. What's the scariest accident you've had in the mountains? Over the years, I've had a, I've had a pretty good track record as far as not too many injuries, but when you're out there going for it all the time, you're going to have a few. And, uh, you know, one time I was up in Alaska and I was skiing with a lady at Kings and Corn and she ended up kind of sliding down a steeper little run and tumbled and, and broke her leg, which was super scary because oh. it was, it was like an angulated fracture and, and, oh. uh, we had to, we had to get her down to the, to the heli to evac her back to the lodge. But, uh, and then I had, I had one guy get caught in a smaller avalanche. I was guiding with Doug Workman and a guy, a little pocket pulled out. I told him to go left in my track and he ended up kind of crossing his tips and he went to the right of the track and a pocket kind of pulled out anyway, it kind of even trained some snow and turned into a big slough. And, Ooh. and, uh, he ended up, cracking his uh his trochanter which is one of your hip bones and oh yeah again we had to do a little evac rescue but um the scariest one was just a couple years ago I was skiing with a really good friend of mine john hunt and we were here in jackson hole and he and i were kind of double guiding um one of our fellow clients john denoville and anyway we were in zero g and john hunt went to open up the run and he went zipping into the the entry and and uh he skied him you know a bunch of times before that anyway he went to make a hard right turn and he ended up hitting some hard pack Ooh. and he lost his ski and he ended ah. up tumbling over some rocks and I didn't really see it happen. But then I just saw him kind of come sliding out of the bottom of the, of the cooler. And I was like, Oh my God, what's going on. And I kind of saw him looking for his gear, but then I, I skied down to him and John and I got down to him. I'm like, are you okay? Are you okay? Hunt? He's like, no, he's like, no, I broke my neck. I'm like, oh. what? It's like, what? And he's like, yeah, my neck's broken. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. So we just held him, you know, we got control of his spine and, and called the ski patrol, 
kind of, you know, we moved him into kind of a safe zone right away. And the ski patrol came down and, and uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of accidents, but John healed up great from that. He's, and he really, uh, he really did break his neck. Yeah. He ended yeah. up breaking C1, which is no. you know, 99% of the time you break your, your first vertebrae. It's, it's curtains. So yeah, usually it's uh, they, they, from your skull down, it's one, two, three, four. And, and anything above seven is really bad. Anything above four is usually paralysis for sure. So that's amazing. He recovered. Yeah. He's an amazing skier. This, uh, this local guy, John Hunt here, and he wow. survived and they flew him down to Salt Lake and he ended up, you know, having some surgery and they put some hardware in there and fused a few things together, but he's back at it. You know, he got super lucky. And, uh, as, as you know, when you're in the mountains all the time, you know, people are going to get hurt. It's, it's just unfortunate that, uh, all the fun sports are so damn dangerous. I believe it, man. It's true. And uh, I'm so glad he recovered and, and you're right. You know, when you're in the mountains, a lot of times you know, people get hurt and people pass away too. And that's something that we don't really like to talk about as skiers and riders, but I like to talk about it a little bit here, at least touch on it. How many friends have you lost in the mountains, Tommy? Oh, you know, over the years, um, in Jackson hole, we've had, you know, Steve Vermeo and a couple guys went down here in the Tetons over the years. You know, I probably lost, lost half a dozen friends and, uh, you know, between helicopter crashes and just all sorts of stuff that happens, you know, avalanches or anything like that. It's just, it's unfortunate when you're pushing it, you're pushing the envelope, it, it happens. And even when I used to race world cup, you know, we had, we had a fatality or two, Really? Back, yeah, back in the '90s, there was uh, Ulrika Meyer. When Megan, my wife, raced in Garmisch one year, she crashed and and Whoa. died on the on the racetrack itself. Just ended up hitting Whoa. like a wooden post. And then uh, another time, I was in Bangen, Switzerland, and uh, a Austrian skier by the name of Gerno Reinstadler was flying down the mountain, and uh, he flew off the last finish jump and ended up flying into the net, and and um, he ended up dying of blood loss. So. Wow. I'm so know. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's like all those friends that were there, are, you know, now gone and shit. It's just like such a bummer that, that, you know, there's so much velocity in skiing and with avalanches and racing and free skiing, everybody's pushing it. You know, everybody wants to get out there and go for it. And I mean, I'm, I'm probably lucky to still be <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. crazy stuff I've done racing world cup downhill and, and back in the nineties when there was no safety and all that. But, uh, I still, I mean, every day is a gift. I agree. How common is it for ski racers to pass away in a ski racing accident? Oh, it's not very, not very common. I, you know, the, uh, over the years, there have been some horrific accidents, you know, on the World Cup, just with the ski, the skis have gotten so much better and the, and the safety. And, uh, you know, oftentimes a lot of those World Cup skiers will find those giant B-nets and they'll just pierce a hole right in them. And yeah. you know, on the other side is trees. So. Oof. It's just being the wrong time and, you know, flying into that little seam in the net or something like that. But, uh, boy, downhill racing sure is fun. I mean, it's like being your own <laughs> race car. It's like being your own race car in the, in, you know, formula one racing, but there's no, uh, there's no frame around you to save you. It's just, uh, you know, aerodynamics and skis and skin tight suit and zip it up, pull up your tidy whities and go for it. <laughs> How many avalanches have you been in? Oh, damn. I've been in a couple. You know, the closest encounter I had one year was probably in, in Granite Canyon here in Jackson Hole. One year I was with a couple of buddies and we were up on uh, oh, one of those runs. I think it was called Northwest Passage. And uh, 
my, my two buddies, Hunter and Carl had skied at the run before. And, and it was, uh, it was like first week of March. It snowed like two feet and, and, uh, there was a little bit of a crust underneath it. And sure mm. enough, we, we skied down the run and Carl and Hunter stopped and they're like, yeah, Tommy, just take this next part down. It, it's all on track for you. And I was like, sweet. And it was like this kind of open little planar face. And I kind of got out on it and I was like, damn, this feels weird. And I kind of ski, I kind of poked the snow a little bit, kind of jumped on it. And then it's like, I don't like this. And I did a kick turn, like flip my left ski over to the left. And then the whole thing just cracked right below my tips. Whoa. And hold the whole, it was like a two foot crown in the whole Whoa. snow. It sounded like glass when it broke huh. and it just went all the way down to the Creek, like a class three or, and, uh, it was as close as I've been to getting caught in a giant avalanche. And, uh, and then we've had a couple other, you know, in Alaska, the first year we opened the lodge, I was up there with uh, Jeremy Novus and and Kim Reichelm and the late Greg Harms and Mike Overcast, and we were just opening up Tordrillo Mountain Lodge, and you know we we got it all set up. It was perfect. We, you know we put together this bar at the lodge and got it all ready for the our first ever group of guests, and and the whole week we were setting up. It was totally sunny and cold, and so there was some some surface horror developing in the mountains, and then. Uh, it snowed like three feet. And so we went out as soon as the guests got there and everything was cracking out. Like you'd oh. look at a slope and it, it avalanche and sure enough, <laughs> we, landed the, yeah, we landed the helicopter up on a slope. And I think overcast was down below me. And when we landed the helicopter, just the, the vibration of the helicopter set off like a class three avalanche where it started like, Whoa. it was about one foot deep at the side, like the, the wall and then it went to three feet deep and the guest that was on the slope somebody yelled avalanche he turned around saw the avalanche coming down and he ended up just falling over whoa and uh, it kind of pasted him a little bit and uh it didn't bury him completely but there's a reason that runs called ike's for ike dana who fell <laughs> over as, as the avalanche came down and hit him not the but, perfect response but it worked out yeah it worked out it was uh it was a close call but uh you know right after that the snow kind of set up and, and got better. It was just that initial, you know, kind of, I call it direct action. Like right after the storm or the snow is just super touchy and, you know, things are just not bonded. And, and that's when you're going to find trouble. Most of the time is getting out there too early or stepping on something a little too steep. And I'm so glad that you weren't in that avalanche on the Northwest passage. I know that line. It doesn't go straight at the end. It has a big hook and it's just rocks. And it's just, there's no good place to be in that. So I'm glad that, that, did not drag you down with it. Have you ever been hurt while skiing? Oh yeah. I've had some injuries. The first real bummer injury that I had was the year after the Olympics. I did, you know, I won the Olympics in 1994 in Lillehammer, Norway. And I went back the year after for the world cup that was scheduled to be there in March. And uh, I was like, I really hadn't had a very good season going the year after I'd been top 10 a bunch, but, um, I went back to Lillehammer and I was like, this is it. I'm back at my, back in, at the Olympic downhill. And sure this enough, is, I'm, this is my place. This is my place. Exactly. So I took off out of the starting gate. I'm like ripping down the course, having a really good run. And uh, I got down to a section of the course. They, they, they named it Tommy Moe's channel. Oh, <laughs> Tommy Moe's corner. And sure enough, I hooked an edge right in that spot, fell backwards going 60 miles an hour, right under my tails. Oh, and totally blew up my knee. Oh man, gosh. And what, what, what a juxtaposition you win gold. And the next time you come back and rip your knee off. 
I know, I know. It was such, I was in, when I got up, I, I knew that I blew my knee out. It's just like the hardest oh. thing for skiers is, is knowing that you blew your knee out because you kind of hear it pop. And uh, I just knew right away that I was like, I just blew my knee out. And then, you know, I had to fly back to Stedman Hawkins Clinic and, and uh, you know, I got it fixed up and whatnot. But, you know, I've had a few other injuries, but, you know, I blew my other knee out here free skiing in Jackson 2001 you know, some cuts and scrapes, but, you know, pr- pretty much just at ACLs on both, both knees. And, uh, I'm pretty lucky that I haven't had more happen to me. That's actually amazing. Considering how you ski, Tommy, uh, the two ACL that's par for the course. I'd say that's below par to be honest. Um, I know my wife, Megan has had nine knee surgeries, so it's, Oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, like a lot of these world cuppers like Steve Nyman and Travis Ganong. And it's not, if it's when you're going to blow your knee out when you're, you know, big mountain free skier or world cup skier, or, or just any average hardcore, you're going to end up hitting the deck at some point. And, uh, it's always a bummer to have to cut it short by walking around on crutches. It's terrible, man. I've been there. I've been there too. It's terrible. So you've been on ski trips all over the world. What was your favorite ski trip? I'd have to think back to, uh, my early days on the U S ski team. One year we flew down to Las Lanas for a ski camp. Oh and, yeah. Uh, I was just so fired up on, on going to Argentina and it was August. We got all the way down there and, you know, we skied like one or two days. It was pretty good skiing. And then all of a sudden this giant storm came in and I think over the next four or five days, it snowed like 10 feet. It and, does uh, that there. Yeah. It snowed 10 feet miles. And sure enough, like the mountain was closed, but they had this T-bar open at the bottom. So me and some of my teammates, we ended up just building a kicker. <laughs> we were doing backflips and working on working on our aerials and, and then you know those there's these hotels in Las Lanias that are that I think they're like six stories high but anyway we were walking up to the third story and jumping off into the powder well you have to have one of your teammates come and dig you out so <laughs> it was rad it was it was just crazy to think about that much snow and then it cleared up and we had an epic ski camp we ended up skiing all sorts of coulars and Back then, Las Lanius was pretty much under the radar and uh, just a really cool resort and uh, had an awesome time just, you know, hanging out in, in Las Lanius, skiing all the alpine terrain and having a good old time. And uh, that was the beauty about being on the U.S. ski team back then is we got to go to all these rad resorts like Las Lanius, Portillo, you know, New Zealand, um, Japan, Europe. And oftentimes we'd be in Europe for ski events and you know, let's, let's say we went over to Val d'Isere for a World Cup. You know, you'd roll in on a Monday and and uh, unpack your gear. And then Tuesday, you'd go up on the slope and warm up a little bit. And then Wednesday, oftentimes, you'd take your first practice run on the downhill track. But oftentimes, a storm would roll in on Wednesday. So if it snowed on Wednesday, then Thursday, you wake up and it's like, you know, two feet of powder. Then right away, they cancel it. So then me and AJ and my teammate Kyle and... Darren Rawls and all of us are like, right on powder day, boys, check it out. So I had some, some of my most memorable skiing when I was on the world cup, cause we'd be in St. Anton or Val d'Isere or, or even Garmisch, some of those super cool ski resorts. And we'd end up being able to ski powder there. What a blast just being able to go rip around and not have to worry about racing. You're just kind of worried about skiing the best snow. You know, we just interviewed Travis Gadong as well. And he said the same, you know, some of his best free skiing has been on the world cup and it must be such a relief 
not to have to race that day and just relax and go do this really fun thing. And you were talking about doing backflips on skis. I'm always curious with you ski racers, what other tricks can you do on skis? What, what tricks have you had in your arsenal during your life? Oh yeah. I still got a heli, you know, I still nice. like a big, yeah, a big floater heli off, you know, I can go in the train parks and, and for the young kids, a heli is a 360. Yeah. They have a 360, <laughs> uh, Johnny Mosley, you know, mute grab. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. Man. But so uh, you great. know, like, when I first moved to Jackson and in the nineties, I guess, uh, you know, free skiing was just taken off and, you know, I raced up until 98 on the, on the world cup. And by that point I was kind of getting into free skiing quite a bit, just because I kind of knew that I was going to have to figure something else out after my ski career. And anyway, I ended up, you know, getting my first place I ever heli skied was in Valdez, Alaska. So, uh, Ooh. after the Olympics in 94, I was, I was in Anchorage and partying with my buddies and, we rented a big motor home and jumped in the motor home with kegs of beer and, and, uh, <laughs> cruised down to Valdez and, and, uh, the local, uh, heli company era kind of comped me like a heli for two days. So I jumped in with Dave Hamry and a couple other buddies and, uh, we went heli skiing on Thompson pass. And I was like, damn, this is awesome. I'm so into this. And, and so then every spring in, in, uh, in the mid nineties, kind of late nineties there, I ended up going to Valdez just cause I was so in love with heli skiing. So I, you know, I'd hook up with Doug Coombs and I did a little bit of filming with Teton gravity research and yeah, I was hanging out with Jeremy Nobis and Brant Moles and yeah, um, showed and I ended up, I ended up forerunning the uh, world extreme comps oh, wow. in Valdez a couple years in a row, just cause a lot of all my friends were competing and it was just such a cool time to be in Valdez. And, uh, and and then of course uh used to ski a bunch with Doug Coombs up there. And I remember one day I was with Doug and and uh Andy Lunn and Matt Lunn and then Tim Petrick. And anyway, he's like, Yeah, just wait till tomorrow, we'll tee it up. And sure enough, we went out with Doug that day. And I remember we were doing like first descents, like yes, cube and happy top and all these just magical, you know, giant Alaskan runs and uh kind of got into my blood pretty early. And, and then around that same time, I helped start two gatch powder guides down in Girdwood with Mike overcast and Dave Hamry. And whoa, and we, yeah, we started doing the I two didn't know that. Powder. Yeah. We started because Mike overcast and I started a rafting company back in 94 in Girdwood. Cause when I was racing, I was like, I need to figure out something for after my ski career. And I was in the rafting and kayaking. So we had the rafting company and, and then in 97, they, they got a permit to ski the two gatch and, uh, so we were out pioneering a lot of the terrain around Girdwood with Dave Hamry and Dave Marshall and, and, uh, Mike Overcast and yeah. And then Chugach Powder got started. And then we, you know, eventually, in, you know, we bought the T the current TML lodge, which is on Judd Lake. We, we bought that in 2006. Um, and you know, before that we do all our summer trips under, uh, Chugach Powder guides and, and, uh, eventually we just kind of, had a little bit of a falling out because there was too many irons in the fire. And then Mike and I just decided to start Tordrillo Mountain Lodge. And it was kind of a serendipity type of event because we, you know, we found some friends to help us buy the property. And uh, we've been, you know, skiing the Tordrillo since 2006. And it's just a vast, awesome mountain range. And as you know, like Travis Rice comes up and films. And oh, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the, you know, the big ski pros have been out there and it's, it's a cool place. Cause it's kind of off the, it's kind of off the radar a little bit. You got to have a little bit of money in your pocket to get out there. Cause it's, there's no road. 
You got to have right. an airplane. You got to have an airplane to get out there. And uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of skiing in Alaska, whether it's the Chugach or the Talkeetnas or the Tordrillos. It's just a special place. Anywhere in Alaska, as you know, you just got to hit it right. You got to be lucky. It's like throwing a dart at the board. Yeah, Alaska heli skiing is like that. That's great. That one of my questions was, you know, what was your transition from ski racing to Alaska heli skiing like? And that was it, man. I had no idea you were involved in Chugach powder guides and then started to Drillo in 2006. I mean, you only retired in 1998. So there's a small window there before you started this huge endeavor. Uh, we might as well jump a little bit more into that. Uh, you know, so you started the, in 2006, I believe you said, you started the Tordrillo Mountain Lodge. So where are the Tordrillo Mountains? Oh, the Tordrillo Mountain Range is uh, 65 miles, pretty much, I'd say, west, north, northwest of Anchorage. If anybody's ever flown into Anchorage, oftentimes you kind of fly into the airport. And if you just look out the left window, depending on which way you come in, you see this big, vast mountain range. And it's, uh, I'd say it's about 60 miles long by about 40 miles wide. So it's, and, uh, you know, it's massive. It's, it has, some of the glaciers are like 30 miles long to the North is Denali national park. And then to the South of the Torridrillos is another national park called Lake Clark national park. And, uh, you know, they left the Torridrillos out of the state park just because they wanted, wanted it to be used for recreation. I think initially back in the day. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, people that go out there and, and, and ski tour. And then a lot of people go hunting and hiking and fishing and rafting. And it was just kind of the right time for us to, uh, to find a lodge in 2006, we found the, the, the current property that TML sits on was actually built in the late nineties as a fishing lodge. And then we ended up finding the owner and he was willing to sell it and, we bought it, put a new heating system in, and uh, you know, over the years, it's evolved into a a luxury heli ski lodge with um, you know high speed internet and you know nice accommodations, great food. It's a little bit expensive comparative to other lodges in Alaska, but you know we have a lot of return clients, and it's just uh, such a cool area. Though I love it because every year I go back, it's like I find new variations to to different runs that I've skied, and oftentimes you know, we'll be out there and say it's a high pressure. So a lot of the main, the main thoroughfares get tracked out. So it make, makes you think outside the box. So you gotta, you gotta find new, new, new terrain. And, um, it's awesome. It's unreal. And actually we ski on the Neocola in, in the Neocola mountain range. Also, it's, uh, it's the next mountain range to the South of the Tordrillos and it's dramatic and big too. It's amazing. Uh, you know, skiing in Alaska, it's all alpine. So oftentimes, you know, you got to have sunny weather to really get the goods. And uh, yeah, I just have a great relationship with skiing in Alaska and, and uh, anywhere the snow's good. I'm happy though. I'm, I'm not just a, a purist heli skier that's out to cherry pick all the goods. I mean, I can go to Buck Hill in Michigan and have a good time. <laughs> I love that. So the Tordrillo Mountain Lodge, it's in the middle of nowhere, you know, in my mindset. How did you guys pick that spot? And what's the skiing like there? Is it different than the other ranges in Alaska? Oh, yeah. You know, the uh, the first time we went to the Tordrillos was, it's kind of a funny story. We uh, initially, my friend Mike Overcast and I went on a hunting trip way out, way out. We flew way up to the headwaters of the Squinta River and we did like this raft trip for 10 days. I think that was like 97 or 96. Anyway, we were 
we were floating down this river. We got dropped off by a bush plane, you know, hundred miles from nowhere. And we were doing some hunting for caribou and looking for some dull sheep and some moose. And, and, uh, I just remember floating down the river and we kept looking up at these mountains going, Oh my God, look at those things. They're beautiful, like glaciers and steep pinnacles and couloirs and, and then sure enough, the next year rolled around and we ended up leasing a helicopter in Anchorage. So we, we, I remember we called up Nobus and, and Wes, Wes Wiley and Tim LaPointe and Kim Reichelm. And we all were like, yeah, we need to all come up with 2000 bucks so we can lease this helicopter and go check out this, this mountain range. So we sure enough, we're in Anchorage, jumped in this old jet ranger and uh, we organized the fuel to get flown out to the Winter Lake Lodge, which is on the Squintna River, where we did the raft trip. And sure enough, we went out there and we just kind of did a recon. It was just me and Overcast and Nobis and, and Wes Wiley and Kim Reichelm. And we ended up going up into the mountains. And, and, it, and it, it was the first week of June, so it was corn snow. And we ended up flying around in this little beater helicopter and and uh, <laughs> with a sketchy pilot. Yeah, I love it. 90s in Alaska. Yeah, we ended up finding some really nice terrain just right outside of Winter Lake. And then uh, and then we flew down to the river and took a raft with us and and found some really good salmon fishing. And uh, we ended up the next year, we we marketed marketed the trip as Kings and Corn. And and I think that first year we only had six guests and uh, we pulled it off for a week. And then the next year we had three groups of four people. So then we had two sessions and then year after year, it just kept growing. And, and so then, you know, we kept running Kings and corn up until I think it was, you know, for seven or eight years. And then we kind of had a falling out with the people that ran the winter Lake lodge. And sure enough, we flew down from uh, winter Lake to, to the TML current site. And we looked at that lodge and went, wow, look at this place. Cause it was, it was kind of defunct. It was empty. And we went, we need to make an offer on this place. It's, we need to find a new spot. Sure enough, we made an offer and found some investors and we ended up purchasing the Torjillo Mountain Lodge in 2006. And the next year, we're like, let's do a trip in April. Wonder what the skiing's like going to be like in April. And sure enough, we went out there and and hit the mountains in April. And that was, that, that was when it was a bit sketchy right after we opened for the first time. But then every year after that, we, you know, we ended up bringing more groups in and making uh, a season out of it went from like, you know, one or two weeks to four weeks to six weeks. And now we do eight weeks, you know, we do March and April at the TML and March and April always, you know, the best months out there for winter skiing. And then we usually shut it down in May. And then, uh, June, we open back up early for our Kings and corn trip. So we've been doing that for a number of years and the Kings and corn trips. Awesome. Because you, you, you know, we go up and ski in the morning and, and, and ski from, you know, nine to one. And then by that time, the snow's a little soft and a little bit sticky. And then we just shoot back to the lodge and we have, you know, water ski boat, mastercraft, we have rafts, e-foils, fishing. Wow. And, and then we have this new thing called the Via Ferrata that people can enjoy. You go rock climbing. Oh yeah. Up the iron way. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a fun, uh, it's been a fun ride to see that place evolve as a founder. And, and, uh, it's such a cool, area it's just uh you know somewhat hard to get to but as you know alaska if you can just get up there at some point in your life it's so spectacular and majestic that uh i look forward to going up there every every chance i get i agree i go up there every year and it always blows me away i spent a summer up there once working uh in mccarthy 
And uh, I, I always tell people too about, I recommend summer too, maybe even more. There's so much you can do in the summertime. And I love that. And so we kind of started this with saying, you've been on ski trips all over the world. Where was your favorite place? And we got into all that information. And I got to ask you, because I ask everybody, is there anywhere you would not go back to? <laughs> oh, let's see here. <laughs> where would I not? I, you know, one place I probably would not go back to, I, I went skiing in uh, Sierra Nevada, which is in Spain. Okay. And uh, we were there for a ski race once. And I think it was, it was just a little like, too flat and i didn't it was all above tree lines and the, the visibility wasn't that great and it was one of those places that uh i probably just won't end up going back to sierra nevada like i, I kind of like a little little steeper terrain but you know there's as you know if it's flat light and the snow's not good it's not all that fun it can really not be fun at all is there anywhere you've not skied yet and you really want to go ski there oh yeah there's that one place in india i'd love to go check out I think it's called Gulmarg. Yeah, Gulmarg, yeah. Gulmarg. I haven't been there yet. That's on the radar. Himalayas. I know they have Himachal Heli Ski. Oh, yeah. Love to go there. Yeah, uh, me too. There's a few guides that, that work there, and they say it's awesome. And, of course, you know, I, I, I've been to Japan a number of times, and I, lo- I love skiing Japan. I went to Hokkaido a couple of times and flew into Sapporo and then went up to Niseko. And uh, the last time I went, I had an amazing trip. I think, you know, it's J- Japanuary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's when you want to go. You're Japan, right? Yep. Japan. And the word's out. I think Japan's just really cool. Hokkaido, at least, because it's an island. They get tons of snow. And the trees are just super spectacular. You know, those eucalyptus trees. And a lot of the a lot of the people that ski in Japan, you know, that they're not that aggressive as far as going into the, some of the, the backcountry. And uh, I had a good friend that was, was showing me around in Niseko and man, we had a good trip. We were skiing this, you know, beautiful powder all the way down to hot springs and then the cold Kieran beer and then the, you know, so the sushi and the, the, the noodles and all that. I mean, I can't wait to take my kids back there someday. You know, I spent four seasons in Japan when we had the big drought in California, 2012 to 2015. And I, I was in Hakaba mostly, but I can second all of that. Highly recommended. Japan, just for the culture and food is worth the trip. What's your favorite ski movie of all time? Oh, I'd have to say Blizzard of Oz. <laughs> yes, Blizzard's a classic. Blizzard, Blizzard of Oz, you know, with Glenn Plake and Scott Schmidt, Mike Hattrip. Yeah, I loved watching the, you know, Glenn Plake. I mean, I ran into Plake a bunch when I'd be training down at Mammoth, and he was always a cool guy. I know, what a what an <laughs> icon. In any way, oh, yeah. the first time I, you know, I had to sign autographs, after the Olympics, I had to go to Vegas for the SIA ski show. You know, I walked into this convention center and there was like 200 people in line. And I was like, what are all these people here for? And the person that I was with was like, they're here for you. And I was like, oh, oh whoa. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up signing autographs and kissing babies and, and kind of getting into that realm. And, and at one point, you know, Glenn Plate came over and he's like, hey, Tommy, just look at these posters as a piece of artwork that somebody's going to put on their wall. And, That's uh, true, right? Yeah, it was kind of cool because you know Plake's made such a cool, great career out of out of his you know his personality, and he's still doing stuff for Elon, and and he's just kind of like the you know the energizer bunny in the ski industry. He just never gets tired of of talking to people, and what a cool guy though. There's very few people that have done as well as he has as far as you know, making your career last your whole life. And 
I just still look back on my career and it seems like a whole different lifetime to me, actually being the I, Olympic I, skier. I bet. You know, the Olympic downhill champion from 1994. And uh, I mean, that was a long time ago. I mean, 27 years is a long time. And, but, you know, the, the cool thing about the Olympic downhill or even World Cup, um, you know, you can win World Cup races and people will kind of know who you are. But I think the Olympic downhill is kind of, it's almost like a badge for life. Snow Brains podcast is brought to you by Scott Sports. Skip the lift lines this year and get into the backcountry. With all the new Scott Winter Essentials, you're set to have a safe and fun time in the mountains. Check out the new product line at scottsports.com. Today's Snow Brains podcast is brought to you by Tamarack Resort. You might come to Tamarack for the views that unfold across the valley or the unspoiled terrain and vast open bowls. Maybe you'll come to uncover a place that's a little different, that's down to earth and at home on the path less traveled. But we know you'll come back because there's a community of people at Tamarack who make you feel like you're in the right place at the right time. You mentioned just now the difference between an Olympic gold medal and a World Cup race win. So which one of those two means more to you? Olympic gold. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, the, the Olympic gold was, uh, you know, going into that season, I'd been second in the World Cup the season before. In 93, I, I got like second at Whistler, and then I got fifth at the World Championships. And um, the Olympic season came upon me, and I was it, it, it was just, everything came together that year. I was like super fit. I was strong. I was on these Dina stars that were, every pair was fast. I remember rolling into the, the Olympics there going, damn this might be my time. And I had a really good friend on the ski team that year. His name was Kyle Rasmussen. And I remember talking to Kyle and he's like, yeah, man, one of us has got to win a medal. Like we got <laughs> to lay this down and things got to come together, you know? And, and sure enough, like the first training run happened and I got like, I don't know, I think I got like 20th place. I was a little bit bummed. And then the second run, I did a little better than the last training run before the Olympic downhill. I got fourth place and I was like, that's how we need to do it. Yeah. That's, that's good. That's good. I mean, I can probably get a medal tomorrow if I can keep my head on my shoulders. Yeah. What, what was your mentality that gold medal day? Yeah, it was weird. Cause like that night, you know, I, I went to get some rest and my, my roommate Kyle Rasmussen was snoring really loud. I hate snorers. Yeah. He was a snorer. So oh, I had to jump up, worst I had people. To jump up and I moved, <laughs> I moved, I relocated my sleeping setup and, I didn't sleep all that well, but I got like six hours, whatever. But then I woke up in the morning and I was just like, okay, this is going to happen. It was one of those days where everything just clicked. All of a sudden I was like on the training course going, damn, I feel good. And then, you know, usually before the race, you get to look at the course and figure out, you know, your line. So I, I remember my coaches were like, yeah, Mo, keep your wits, man. Go out there and just ski the best you can. You know, you can, you can do this. And, and, uh, the thing I remember the most was uh, my wife now was actually there competing. And Megan was like, Tommy, just don't worry about what place you're going to get. You know, don't worry about who you're going to be. Just focus on skiing the best you can. And that really hit home. I was like, okay, ah. I'm just going to focus on, on how I can perform and execute this thing. Cause I love this downhill. The track was perfect. It was, it wasn't overly hard, but it was the type of downhill that had 
it was like a motocross track where you get in the rhythm and all of a sudden you're in the, in this rhythm where you're just like looking for speed. And, uh, I ended up having a great number. I went out of the starting gate right behind the favorite Andre Chetil, Andre Almott. He you, went out you seven. broke, you broke Norway's heart that day. I did. I just <laughs> ripped, ripped gold right out of his chest. It was like, I'm <laughs> <laughs> came down and he had the fastest time. He had a one forty five seventy five, And then I, I got Ooh. in the starting gate. I, I remember hearing the crowd actually from the top of the mountain cheer for him. And uh, I was two tenths behind at, at, in the top section. And then in the middle section, I had this, this uh, out of body experience where I, I pre-jumped a roller going like 75 miles an hour. I, it, a pre-jump is when you lift up the tails of your skis before you you hit the uh, the lip. And I ended up pre-jumping this roll and, and I landed inside everybody's track. And I think I made up like, I don't know, four or five tenths in that section. That's kind wow. of where I won the race. Wow. And, and then I maintained my speed throughout the bottom. I flew like 180 feet off this jump at, at the very bottom. And, and when I was in the air, Miles, I was like, oh my God. I'm going to land outside the gate. And when I landed, I literally landed like in the compression right inside the gate. And then I just grabbed my full tuck. We used to call it the bullet tuck, grab your bully. And, and then I came to the finish line at the bottom and I, I was kind of hoping that I'd had a good run and I wasn't sure. Cause I felt like I was in slow motion, but you know, I looked up at the board and saw one and I was like, Holy shit. Oh yeah. Buddy. <laughs> I bet. I, bet. I was like, this, Hopefully this. And so I had to wait, you know, for, a bunch more racers to come down the slope and uh it was it was pretty stressful yeah was, that must have been rough yeah the one i think ed potovinsky from canada came down and missed the gold by 1200s whoa and then another french dude nicholas burton came down number 36 and missed it by like 1800s but then at, once you got into the the 40s and 50s it was kind of like i think i just won this thing and whoa the crazy the craziest part for me from that was the next morning. I mean, that night I went and did a couple of interviews. I, you know, I went to the award ceremony and they're like American Tommy Moe from the United States of America, gold medal. And Woo! yeah, I was just like, <laughs> Oh my God, you know, and, and, uh, but you know, my wife, Megan was there and my dad and, and it was just like kind of surreal. And then, uh, you know, after the award ceremony, they're like, Hey, Tommy, we got a call from the president. He wants to talk to you. So holy I shit. Yeah, I pick up the phone. I'm like, hey, Bill, how's it going? <laughs> I had no idea you were supposed to uh you were supposed to address him as Mr. President. And oh, uh, I bet he liked that. Yeah, he was laughing. He's like, oh, there you go, Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh the next morning, That's though, so I thought cool. it was a dream. I thought it was a dream, Miles. The next morning I woke up and I was like, Oh my God, was that real? Where's that metal? And I, like, I thought it was a dream. So I went, I went walking down this hallway and I put the Olympic gold in this window seal. And I went, I went down and looked and it was there. And I just kind of did some dance. I'm like, oh yeah. I bet you did, man. Oh my gosh. And, and for our listeners who don't know that the, the downhill at the Olympics, it's, it's the event of skiing, you know, the, the downhill is, is the premier event. You know, all the other events are awesome too, but the downhill is the, is the big, strong, fast people just ripping down the mountain. It's super intense. It's super high risk. So to win that gold medal must've just been out of this world. You know, what an amazing result for you. And, and I love, there might be another story to this too. I've heard that after winning your gold, you won a silver medal. You told us about only four days later on your 24th birthday, which is nuts. And so, and then you flew directly to Vegas from Norway 
and you were put up in some kind of palatial room, I've heard, uh, by the Mirage Casino owner, the, the man himself, Steve Wynn. And you were there to party for a few days, and there was huge fans, huge crowds of fans to meet you there. Could you tell us a little bit about this trip to Vegas? That sounds amazing, man. What a way oh, to celebrate. It was cool. So, you know, the, uh, you know, when I flew back to the States, it was, uh, you know, they showed, they showed like some of the other Olympic champions going back to their hometowns and there was thousands of people waiting for their arrival and whatnot. But I, uh, I ended up going right to SIA. And, Which is the uh, Snow Sports Industry Association trade show. Used yeah, exactly. They, they still have it. They still have those now more or less, but they moved in, moved in Denver. And anyway, yep. I ended up going to Vegas and, and, uh, I remember riding in, I was, I was in a limo of course, and, uh, cruising down. <laughs> I'm going to the hotel and we stayed at the Mirage and uh, in the marquee, it said, welcome Olympic gold, silver medalist, Tommy Moe. And I'm, you know, I'm on the, I'm on, I'm on the spotlight here at the front of the hotel. And anyway, we, uh, I check in and, and the next day, that's when I told the story about going to the convention center and there was hundreds of people there waiting to get my autograph. Oh, that's when that was. Yeah, that was, it was pretty, it was kind of, it was a little bit of a, a eye opener just because, for me being pretty naive and young and there were certain things that I learned from that. And that's when I met Plague. He helped me a bunch and, and he's like, yeah, just, you know, suck it up, you know, do your best to be as nice as you can to everybody. And, and, uh, but it was cool. I met Steve Wynn. We went out to shadow Creek and played his golf course. And, and then Fun. we had a couple of huge parties. I invited all my buddies up there. It was like this 8,000 square foot single level condominium in the Mirage. And Whoa. <laughs> yeah, we lit it up. And, uh, you know, I remember after that, I flew right to Aspen for a world cup and I probably should have taken the week off. Cause I was so destroyed. Yeah. I bet <laughs> from partying in, uh, from partying <laughs> in, in, uh, in Vegas that I went to Aspen and I got my ass kicked. I was so tired mentally. Oh, I, uh, bet. And I got, I got 55th in the downhill and then like 25th <laughs> in the next downhill. And then oh, no. the guy from sports illustrated walks up and interviews me and he's like, Tommy Mo, I think you're a flash in the pan. <laughs> Whoa. So I got all, I got kind of pissed. They got me fired up. I was like, yeah, am I a flash in the pan? And so I regrouped after that. And we actually flew to Whistler. There was another world cup that weekend up, up in Whistler. And, and I finally got rested and, and I had a, a great weekend at Whistler. I ended up winning the super G huge. And then I got third in the downhill and I was kind of back on track, but you know, for me, when I look back and I wish I would have won more world cups, but you know, I had seven podiums and world cup and a couple of Olympic medals. And, um, it was just, everything came together that season. And then the, you know, the next year I was right in the money where I wanted to be, but I just couldn't put link it together. And then I got hurt in, uh, in Norway the next year. And then I, I struggled in my career after that to come back. I, you know, 96, I, I had some decent results and then I kept, you know, racing up until 98 in, uh, Nagano, Japan, because I wanted to defend my title. I was kind of like, I need to defend right. this thing and see how it goes. And, and I uh, went to Japan for the 98 Olympics and ended up getting eighth in the Super G and like 12th in the downhill. And, you know, I missed a medal in the Super G by half a second, which was close. And, and by that time, I'd been on the USQ team 12 years. And I was just like, I think it's time. I'm ready to do something else. And I've achieved what I wanted to. And then I raced pro. I raced on this Jeep King of the Mountain circuit. And we started the we started doing Kings and corn and I was kind of looking for other things to do. And I moved to Jackson hole. And, uh, the thing that, that just came to my mind was, you know, I was like, I'm going to retire. And it was, it was kind of a hard decision, but 
I raced on this Jeep King of the Mountain. It was a pro downhill circuit from 98 till 2004. And it was just a big party. We just went to Aspen and Squad. That sounds fun. It was super fun. They had, you know, there's a team event. I had a teammate, Kyle Rasmussen, at most of the events. And, uh, you know, we were just hobnobbing and and uh, schmoozing with the sponsors and partying. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, the, the pro circuit was a blast. And, and And I got more into guiding at that time. So... And, and how did how did winning the gold medal change your life? I think the biggest thing was just the notoriety. You know, the of course, you know, winning the gold had a lot of uh, impact on on my life as far as personal time and sponsors. And um, I, you know, I probably could have capitalized more being the the hillbilly Alaskan I was. I was <laughs> I, I didn't like I didn't I didn't like I didn't like dealing with people and talking on the phone and and sponsors and all that. I kind of wanted to stay like where I was in Alaska. And so the, and, and how did that go? Cause you ended up on Letterman, you ended up on Leno, you run all the, the today show, Brian Gumble. Um, yeah. What was it? What was it like being on David Letterman show? For example, it was a trip. I think that, you know, the thing that really changed for me was just the spotlight. All of a sudden you just have this spotlight shining on you and you have yeah. to really, you know, talk to people and talk about your run and, and talk to the sponsors and it was a learning ex- experience for me, but I, I ended up working with IMG international management management group. And they actually coached me and, and helped me with a lot of my ski contracts. And I was getting appearance fees and then making appearances at events. And that was awesome. I think, uh, yeah. What know, was it the, like, like, like just for yeah. example, what was it like being on the David Letterman show? Oh, you know, the, uh, David Letterman's mom, you know, she gave me a ham. <laughs> She liked you. Yeah, she liked me. She liked me. That was that was pretty cool. And then, you know, David Letterman was, you know, he interviewed me. I never made it on his show, actually, but his mom was in Lillehammer. Oh, that's so uh, cool. Yeah, that was a great part of it. And then the the other aspect that was cool was just, you know, having to figure out your schedule between making sponsor appearances because all of a sudden I was number one in the world at the end of that season. And wow, I hit the jackpot for a lot of my ski contracts and I was making good money. And for me, I was, it was awesome. I was like, you know, this is great. I'm right where I want to be. I got an agent. I'm making appearances, you know, I'm traveling to certain little ski shops, you know, you know, sell, help sell Dina star Lang, look, Kerma, spider, Boeri, you know, I had all these killer sponsors and, um, you know, I had a line of clothing with spider and uh, I'd go hang out with Dave Jacobs at the spider headquarters in Boulder. We were designing all these different clothes and it was just a really cool time in my life. And, um, you know, I learned a lot from the business aspect of it. And, and at the same time, I was trying to figure out my career afterwards. And, you know, a lot of world cup skiers in Europe, if you're an Olympic champion, usually you go and, and, uh, you know, you start like your, your hotel or you get a hotel and put your name on it. Oh, is that right? Yeah. A lot of those guys end up, ah. you know, they start like a guest house and, you know, they put all their Olympic and world cup trophies in, in, in the lobby. And, and then they're there, you know, helping people enjoy their experience. But I did the opposite. I went to Alaska and started a heli <laughs> company. That's way more and, American. Uh, I love it. Yeah. And so, you know, that, and, and now I, I actually, I do have my Olympic downhill skis tacked on the wall at TML and, yes. and uh, Oftentimes people ask me if they, 
they can see my run. So I have it all teed up on the computer. <laughs> we go nice. plug it in. They want to see the Mo show. So it's like, it's kind of grainy, you know, I, I have to get the VHS tape out. <laughs> oh, that's good, man. That good. It's like an old vinyl record. I like that. It gives us some authenticity. One of my questions and you, you mostly touched on it, but how do ski racers make money? Is there a good system in place? You know, oftentimes, you know, for the World Cup skiers, back when I raced at the end of the 94 season, I was ranked number one in the world in Super G. And, you know, back then I had a ski contract with Dina Star. And in the contract, they had like a, a uh, it was called a victory schedule. And basically that had like Olympic gold, so much money, Olympic silver, so much money on down and then ranking. So if you were ranked number one in the world, you'd get you'd max out the contract and, uh, nice. that happened to me. Yeah. It happened to me. You know, I had a, a great deal with Dina star Lang, and, and, and I skied Solomon bindings and Kerma ski pole. So all those different sponsors had little schedules and, uh, I did pretty well, but, uh, you know, the, the biggest one for a lot of ski racers now is pretty much your headgear sponsors. So if you watch like Michaela Schifron or Lindsay Vaughn, they have like Red Bull, on their helmet. And, uh, yes. that's pretty much the, like, if you're Michaela Schifron and you have, you know, Barilla as your sponsor, that's kind of the moneymaker. And, and I love when you won too, when you won the gold and the silver in 94, because you won it in Europe. And, and my understanding, especially back when you were young and in, in that world cup scene, that there was a big rivalry between the Americans and the Europeans. Can, can you, can you, can you speak to that? What was that like? Or did it exist uh, yeah. at all? Yeah. The, uh, you know, when I raced on the world cup, we got along really well with the Canadians. Uh, we were, we trying to travel to the same, same venues, but then of course the Austrians were kind of quiet, you know, kind of mountain people that were just kind of, you know, super nationalistic and, uh, tough. They try to get in your head. Yeah. Most of the time though, we got along pretty well. I mean, with the Canadians and, you know, the Brit, there's some British skiers, some Kiwis, some Australians. Um, and I think most of the time, now on the world cup, everybody kind of gets along pretty well. There's not really too much, uh, you know, animosity or, or, or hatred on the world cup. Cause you're kind of going to the same venues and you're, you're on the same tracks. And, um, you know, I'm sure there's some of the racers that, you know, don't really care for each other, but I had a lot of great memories on the world cup from, you know, the days that we used to free ski with Rob Boyd and Brian Stemmel. And, and, you know, we were doing backflips together and hanging out and traveling and, <laughs> you know, great memories, great memories, but you know, the language barrier is there for sure. Uh, oh, I, I, never, I so didn't really many speak, languages. Yeah. I didn't speak German. And so, you know, so most of the euros would speak English and we got along pretty well. I mean, especially the Scandinavians were class acts, uh, you know, the Swedes, of course, Frenchies were super nice the Swissies and Austrians were nice people too. They're just a little more nationalistic, a little more quiet. And how about did performance enhancing drugs ever come into play there? Did you, were people using performance enhancing drugs back then or, or what do you, what do you think was going on? In my career? I, I didn't, um, I didn't have any involvement with any um, performance enhancing drugs. Um, we just lifted weights and we have practically overtrained when I was on the U.S. ski team because you know, often we'd go up on the slope and, and, and hammer out like four or five hard runs on a downhill course. Then we'd go have lunch and then watch our video. Then we'd go to the gym and work out. And we almost did too much. So. And what, uh, what about the Austrians? You know, I've heard rumors and stuff like that back in your time that, you know, some of the euros might've been, but, but nothing, obviously nothing confirmed, but I'm always curious. Yeah. I think, uh, 
I think there was an Italian that got busted for HGH, okay. human growth hormone. So I think some of that was going on. I'm not too sure. You know, there was questions about Herman Meyer and some of his, because he disappeared in the summer. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Maybe they were, maybe they were doing a little HGH, just human growth, because it really helps with recovery. Right. And even, even older people now can, can take um, some HGH and it, you know, it helps with your bone structure and recovery, but yeah, I, I don't really know a lot about it, but as you know, and, and, you know, Lance Armstrong was, was cheating, you know, often. And I don't know about the world cup though. Cause I know like we even got drug tested a bunch back then though. Every time yeah. the world cup event, you had to pee into a vial and they checked it for, uh, you know, for all that caffeine and, nicotine and you know whatever else they were looking for so but you know on the world cup level now i, th- I think it's pretty strict as far as drug testing at the olympic level there uh, you, you know usada they have they, they'll come and knock on your door at any given time and give you a test it's crazy man well thank you for all that let's jump into free skiing because you obviously do a ton of free skiing now especially in alaska and jackson hole uh, you're clearly comfortable in big mountain terrain. You've been in ski movies, all of this. So when did free skiing start for you? I, I started free skiing at a super young age in Montana. My dad, uh, Tom Sr., was he was a really good free skier. Like I said earlier, you know, he had the he had the, the white stag ski pants on, the powder horn jacket, the pom-pom hat. He was just swiveling through the bumps, just smooth <laughs> as hell. And uh, you know, my dad was kind of my idol growing up because he was just a really good free skier. And so we'd free ski in Montana. We'd hit huge jumps all the time. We, you know, they were comparable to some of the hits in some of the train parks that they have now, but they were natural. You know, there was one in Montana called the big drift. That was actually a fault where the mountain kind of opened up this huge, like half pipe thing that had like a weird, yeah, it had this super cool, you know, 150 yard in run into this giant compression that went up 75 yards. And then you'd, it just send you into the air for, you know, 20 or 30 feet. And then it had a steep landing. It was cool. The best jump ever. And, uh, sounds awesome. Yeah. It was so rad. And, and, and I, I guess later on, they ended up filling it up to make a snowmaking, uh, pond for, for snowmaking, which is unfortunate, but then we had another one called the ham that was similar. (laughs) It was the ham. It had this end run through the trees and it kind of sent you way up in the air. And, uh, as a young skier, I was, I loved free skiing. Uh, you know, in Montana, I started free skiing at a super young age. And then when I moved to Alaska, I remember going up on the hill in the afternoon and I'd be the first one up there. And I was just so jacked to go rip down some of the free runs and, you know, as hard as I could, as fast as I could, just going for it, you know, back on the technology that we had back then, no fat skis. So what a blast. I mean, yeah, you know, the racing aspect when I was growing up, racing was pretty much the only avenue. So of course I wanted to be like Phil Mayer or Bill Johnson. And I had those, those dreams as a young skier, but I was always a free skier. When I moved to Alaska, I was like, I remember free skiing with some of my buddies, we were doing flips. And this one guy, Mark, I, we were up on Eagle rock once and he came, he was, he was on the UAA ski team, but a really good free skier. And he went off the jump and did a double front and stuck it. And I was like, Oh my God, that's rad. (laughs) Yeah. The free skiing was just like, I just enjoyed being out there and, and, you know, that feeling you get when you're ripping down a run and, you know, you're linking everything together and popping off a few rocks or little hits. I mean, what a, what a, what a blast. I mean, even to this day, I still love 
you know, the little knuckle, the little spines that we get in Alaska. And even here in Jackson with my kids, we, we find these little popper rocks, little cliffs. Uh, and, you know, my skis leave the snow. I can jump when it's deep, but I don't really send it like I used to. But uh, for my kids now, I, I find these, I have, we have all these little hits. We have one cliff called Dwayne Johnson, the rock. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great name. Must be big. It's pretty big. It's kind of looks like it's his face too. It's all just, oh, whoa. it fills in. And, and then we have another one in rock Springs called, called Eagle rock. And so early season, it's like a 20 footer. And then by the end of the season, it's like a 10 footer. So nice. I'll line up and, and send it off that a little bit, you know, with my kids, I kind of, I just kind of dabble off the side of it, but you know, I love free skiing and, and just the fact that you're out there with your buddies or your kids and what a blast, you know, and it's good. It's just that elation you get from, the energy and the stoke and just, you know, being able to let gravity, you know, pull you down the mountain. I mean, it's effortless. And, and, uh, that flow that you get free skiing. I love, I love being up there when you know that, you know, the line that you're going to hit. And, and, uh, I mean, I just, I still feel like a little kid when I'm in the mountains and enjoy free skiing. What a blast. And I feel like that flow has, has gone so well for you. I mean, obviously you're an amazing ski racer, amazing free skier to the point where you're in Warren Miller movies, you're in TGR movies. What was it like filming those ski movies? You know, the first time, I think the first time I filmed Warren Miller was with Reggie and Zach Christ. We had Tom Day come up to the Tordrillos. And I think the movie was called Journeys back then. And, uh, uh-huh. and so I was dabbling a little bit with filming with TGR kind of early. And did you, did you like it? Was it fun? Yeah, I liked it. You know, I was hanging out with Kent Kreitler and Jeremy Nobis and uh, Brent Legends. And yeah, we were Gordy Pfeiffer, Jeremy, Jeremy Jones even was on some of these trips that we, yeah. were, we were heli skiing in Valdez and Haynes. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of patience that goes into the film aspect. You got to wait for the perfect light and then you got to wait for the camera to set up. And uh, I learned a lot about ski filming and and ski photography because everybody wants to get the cover shot and uh oh yeah yeah you know what a blast i think you know tom day was was really fun to work with in alaska we uh we filmed kings and corn and it turned out to be a super good segment and help our company and then and then again like 10 years ago i we did another anniversary kings and corn film trip with darren rolves and marco sullivan and uh wow. all the squaw palisades tahoe boys yeah yeah so we did another little segment there in uh i think that one was uh line of descent because they talked about you know how i had kids and and johnny mosley was in that one and how he had kids and then uh what was the last time oh then we filmed another one just three or four years ago here in jackson Whoa. with uh it was a warren miller segment with i did a film with um jess mcmillan and griffin post and rob kingwell Wow. And we filmed, you know, just right here in Jackson. And, you know, of course they captured, you know, Corbett's Kular and, and uh, we had an amazing week. We were just doing the, you know, kind of the, you know, the one or two, three turns where it's just coming over your head. And oh. um, it was awesome. And speaking of Jackson, you are a ski guide for Jackson Mountain Resort, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. I seem to see you out there every freaking day charging around with clients. You're out there all the time, sometimes on skis, sometimes even on a snowboard. Uh, so yeah, just tell us how long have you been ski guiding at Jackson Hole? Oh, you know, I, I think this is year 10 here in Jackson. Uh, oh. You know, I started working for the Mountain Sports School here late 90s doing these uh, Tommy Mo All Mountain camps because, uh, you know, Doug Coombs was here and he was doing uh, steep and deep camps. And so I started dabbling into the into the camp 
set up. And sure enough, I started, you know, Jackson Hole started early with having guides in the backcountry, and uh, you know, I was I was certified, and and uh, I started talking to Brian McGuire, and and I was like, yeah, I'm ready to guide in the backcountry, and he's like, yeah, we'd love to have you, and and um, sure enough, you know, I'll have guests that I ski with in Alaska that end up coming to Jackson. Nice. And then oftentimes I'll have ski, I'll ski with guests here in Jackson hole where they want to know about Alaska. So there's this little give and take there that ends up to work, working out really great. Cause um, you know, it's great because I can meet new guests and um, you know, in our sport, it's always good to meet younger people that are fired up about skiing somewhere new. And uh, I love, I love being able to, you know, look out my window here in the Tetons and see the, you know, Cody peak and no name peak and rendezvous peak, you know, I'm looking at them right now. And, and, uh, I just, you know, sometimes I'll even get my binos out in the morning if it's a good day and kind of look oh, at yeah. the surface and be like, damn, it's going to be a good one. And, <laughs> and, uh, by that time, you know, we're, we're already figuring out the, the, the guide meeting. And, and then we, I just pretty much roll onto the bus, you know, right down here from my house and jump on the bus and shoot out to the resort. And then, uh, you know, hit my locker, get my boots on and then, jump out of the locker right down to the tram. And, and usually we load the tram at like eight thirty six or eight forty eight, and, uh, get up early on the mountain. And then usually the patrol opens it at nine. And, uh, oftentimes we just kind of ra- rally the, the inbounds on a good day. Cause you know, some of the inbound strain here is off the hook good. And we end up ripping yeah. that tail gets tracked up and then, then we'll go drop into a rock Springs and maybe a green river or four pines. And, uh, turns out to be, super easy, fun guiding and, you know, big vertical 4,000 feet and Jackson holes known for great powder. And, you know, when it's on here, as you know, it's, it can be some of the best skiing in your life. So, I mean, we're, we're so lucky to have access to the Tetons, at least the Southern end of the Tetons here. And, uh, I'm a big fan. And almost every time I see you out there, you're on their second or third lap by the time I even get out there, man. So always oh, impressive, always impressive to see you guys out there crushing it. And I got to ask you more about the snowboarding because you yelled at me one day when you were snowboarding and I was kind of ignoring you because I just, in my mind, you're not a snoboarder. And it's a real, oh shit, that's Tommy. So how long have you been snowboarding and how long have you been snowboarding well enough to guide on a snowboard? You know, I love, I love snowboarding. Um, you know, and snowboards first came out, I was in Montana with my brother and, and, uh, I think he got like a Burton back hill or like, you know, <laughs> when I grew up, I did a lot of skateboarding nice. with my brother and buddies around Anchorage area, like street skating. So I had the, I had the skateboarding down and then snowboarding when it first came out, I think it was like, must've been mid eighties, you know, or late eighties. And we got a Burton board and I was like, picked it up super fast. And then sure enough at Kings and corn, you know, back late nineties overcast and I, we had a lot of guests that snowboarded. So we were like, we better snowboard here. And so we ended up <laughs> snowboarding on the corn and I loved it. I was like, it's rad, you know, because super you know, you're riding sideways. It's, it's fun as hell. And if, if you have guests that snowboard, they love it. If you snowboard and then at the Tordrillo mountain lodge, quite a few years back, uh, Laird Hamilton would ended up coming up and uh, he came up with a really good friend of his, this guy, his name was Don Wildman. And, uh, He's since passed, but Don loved it. If I snowboard with him, he's like, Mo, are you going to snowboard with me tomorrow? I'm like, Oh yeah, <laughs> we got Laird out there and Dave Kalama and all these no dudes. Way. And, uh, Laird Laird Hamilton. Hamilton is, uh, you know, like it's always cool if you have a group of snowboarders to snowboard with them. Cause you kind of know where the, where to traverse and, um, right. 
And then a couple of years ago, Travis Rice was up at our lodge and he left a couple of those, uh, his, his signature Orca snowboard. Oh, wow. And uh, so those are just like new technology, super awesome. It has the magna traction edge. Oh, those are weird. Yeah, the wavy edge. Yeah, wavy yeah. edge. So I really loved that when I got my hands on one of those. Uh, and it's just cool to kind of mix it up. And I've had some amazing days in Alaska and, and, and even here in Jackson Hole with high mountain heli skiing, snowboarding. I just, it's just kind of cool. Cause it's, you know, the, the thing about snowboarding is you, it's just more, you know, four aft, you're kind of leaning forward and kind of leaning back on your heels. And I think snowboarding is a little bit easier on your body compared yes, to skiing. Definitely. Skiing, you get more angulation and more hip. So there's more upper lower separation. And uh, the deal with snowboarding is, you know, if you have the right condition, this is awesome. Cause I mean, I love, I love like wake surfing and, and wakeboarding and I've gotten into foil boarding a little bit behind the boat and um, it's just super cool. And, and I really enjoy snowboarding cause it's, it's, it's just the perfect tool for the right conditions. I really want to get into snowboarding as I get older and, and get more into that because I, I spend all my off season time, all of it surfing. I love sliding sideways oh, yeah. on a board. So I'm, I've got to get into it. There's one thing I'm definitely curious to ask you about is how has skiing changed over your lifetime? Like what patterns have you noticed change in the ski industry and in your life and in skiing in general, snowboarding, all of it? I think the, the pattern that's changed the most is um, the expense. Like just the fact that it costs like $180 to get a lift ticket now at some of the top resorts. Whereas when I was yeah. a kid, it was like $35 or $40. But, you know, the lifts when I was a kid were super slow. They were like these two person riblets that, that, you know, took a long time, but, but skiing, it seemed like in the seventies and eighties was, was pretty chill. Like there was, people were pretty laid back about it. It was all about, you know, the apres skiing, of course, and, and getting your turns in. And, and, and it seems like now at a lot of the bigger resorts, like in Utah and Wyoming and Montana and whatnot, a lot of, a lot of the people can, can see what the conditions are like from the webcams right. and you know, they can get an icon pass. And so they can jump in their car and rally up to Jackson from Colorado. And they're there the next day in line, ready to hit it. And I think a lot of people now really get too fired up on how much vertical they ski or how many runs they get. And uh -huh. they forget the etiquette that goes along a little bit with, you know, lift lines and, and just kind of being a little more mellow about it, but cause I get it. Like it costs a lot of money to, to ski and you want to maximize every minute you're on the slope, but um, it's kind of gotten a little bit too aggro almost. There's like almost a little bit of a, you know, territorial aspect, almost like surfing here in Jackson and some of the, in, you know, some of the spots that people are kind of protective about and they, they get kind of surly and whatnot, but it's still skiing and snowboarding. And, and, uh, I think, you know, the thing that I've noticed the most is just, you know, there's more people of course are out there going for it. And, uh, the access is so much more easy now. And then the internet gives you a lot more information. You can get a lot of information from the World Wide web, which is cool. And it's just, there's so much, so many more tools at your, at your fingertips to figure out terrain, where to go. And, I mean, it's awesome because there's I mean, people can see like they can watch the webcams in Utah and be like, OK, the snow looks good there. This rally yeah. and they can be there the next day. And, and even you're good at that. I'll follow you a little bit. And all of a sudden, Miles is like, oh, I'm back down in Utah. Oh, it's getting good in Jackson. Let's go back to Jackson. It's great. 
I read a lot of forecasts. Yeah, right. And it, <laughs> it, it's so cool to be able to do that now. Like, and a lot of times people come to Jackson Hole and, and they're like, oh, I wished it snowed. But I was like, hey, if you really want to get it, you got to storm chase. Like, yeah. you got you to gotta look at that forecast and be like, okay, there's a low pressure moving in across Tahoe. It's going to be, it's going to be in Nevada and then it's going to hit Idaho and Montana and in Wyoming. So let's get in the car and pop a wheelie and <laughs> yeah, get up to Jackson and catch it when there's six or eight inches of good snow. And, and, uh, that's awesome now be able to do that. Yeah. But I agree with you. The, the agro and the territorialism, uh, and, and the lack of inclusion sometimes is definitely a challenge. I, I agree with you on those things. So partying and skiing, I, you know, I read that you said you don't party like you used to uh, in an interview, but maybe you did when you were on the World Cup a little bit more. Has partying ever been a problem for you or other ski racers on the World Cup or just skiers that you know? Oh, you know, when, when I used to race on the World Cup, of course, you're, you're going to go après ski after the downhill race and enrage and, and party. And, you know, the Hanencom race that that I raced six or eight times, there's a there's a bar called the Londoner Pub, and we used to go to the Londoner and just take our shirts off and guzzle beer and <laughs> take shots and pour beer and champagne and just blow your pipes out. And that was important. That was super important. I think just to get all the angst and energy out of your body and, and have a good time with your buddies. Cause that's a, that's a big part of it. You got a lot of stress to deal with racing. And, and uh, you know, one thing that happened to me after, after I won the Olympics and whatnot, there was just more partying for sure. And, and uh, I kind of got sucked into some vortexes that, probably shouldn't happen but uh seemed like everywhere i went everybody wanted to do a shot with me and uh <laughs> i did i did that and i think it affected my career a little bit and i don't really have any regrets from from back then but there was there was a few times um i definitely woke up the next day all dinged up and especially when i raced on the jeep king of the mountain i mean it was just one giant party and uh you know my 20s i used to we used to party pretty hard, you know, after the races and whatnot, but I was still focused. And then my thirties, I started getting a little more loose and, and my forties, it seemed like I had kids and, and was drinking more and I'm a little bit predisposed in my family. You know, there was some alcoholism that happened in my, in my genetics with my mom and my grandpa. And, and, uh, so finally I just had to give up the, the booze like six years ago. I was like, it's time to throw in the towel here. And good for you. Uh, yeah. I just, it's kind of a bummer in a way that I could <laughs> control. <laughs> I wish I could have, uh, you know, controlled some of the alcohol that I, uh, consumed, but you know, I had, I had, I had a blast. I, I used to, you know, rage when I was in my thirties and twenties even, and what a blast to go to the stagecoach and, and party your lips off. <laughs> yeah. Literally. And the mangy moose and all that, you know, getting kind of hacked up and, and it, what a blast, but, you know, I kind of reeled it in now. And, uh, you know, the, the cool thing about, you know, the, about your life is you learn from your mistakes. And I definitely, I've learned a lot from different mistakes that I've had. And, uh, I think if I wouldn't have stopped drinking, I probably would end up getting divorced and probably lost my job. And so the writing was on the wall. Like I was on two different roads and there's like the winning road or the losing road. And I'm, I think I'm still on the, the winning road as far as making the right choices. And, uh, for me, it's, it's super important just to try to keep the booze kind of out of my life. And, you know, I, I kind of miss the two beer kind of camaraderie après ski. Cause I, I still love, I still love a beer, but you know, now there's all these cool options with this athletic brewing company makes them, they're making IPAs that are 
0.5. So I'll, I'll guzzle down a couple of those, you know, nice. or, but the partying, you know, it, the later half of my career, I kind of got sucked into the work. I probably could have done better. I think if I wouldn't have partied, but, um, I was, I was partying and, and, um, that's the way it was. And it, I learned from it, but you know, Bodie's a prime example. You know, you can, you can make mistakes. And he said he got to party on an Olympic level. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> But uh, I think he learned from it too. The next go around at the Olympics, he ended up, you know, getting his shit together and and getting a gold, silver, and bronze. And uh, at least I won my medals before I started partying too hard. That's good. And he, of course, of course, he's referring to Bodie Miller. And I really appreciate your honesty and sharing all this with us. I think there's a lot to be learned there because I think, you know, drug and alcohol abuse in ski towns in North America is very prevalent and it can lead to a lot of problems. And you've seen it. I've seen it. And, uh, and I think it's great that you now have found a solution for that. And, and also being on the world cup and experiencing that pressure, I think you do sometimes need to have these outlets and explosions. So I don't know, Tommy, you're definitely still in the winning road. And I, I think it's great that you found a way to, to make it all work. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate your honesty and sharing that with us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. I think, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing is just being in the moment, waking up, feeling good. You know, you know, when it's going to be an awesome day, like you're kind of amped up the night before. And for me, it's all about, getting up early, getting out the door and, and, uh, getting on the snow when it's prime and, and having those magical moments on snow that we all look for in life. And, uh, I'm still living the dream, you know, here in Wyoming and Alaska. And, and of course my kids are like the apple in my eye. I just love skiing with my daughters and they're like killing the free skiing and the racing and having a blast. And there's a little bit of pressure on them to, you know, try to make the U S ski team, but one of my daughters was so cute. She's like, daddy, ski racing stresses me out too much. And I'm like, it, it's I'm like, it's okay, Taylor. Don't, don't feel like you have to like make the U S ski team, just go out there and have fun with your buddies and and do what you do. And, and uh, it'll teach you a lot about skiing and, you know, being, being on the ski club and being able to ski after school over at the King. And, and uh, I promise I'll take you heli skiing someday. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, man. And, you know, I, I don't coming back to the alcohol and drugs. You know, when, when I was in college, I was on the UC Berkeley ski team and it was nuts. Every night had some sort of drinking theme. Even if you didn't want to drink, it was, they would come and find you with a flashlight and grab you and put a bottle in your mouth. It was crazy. And I remember when I graduated from college, I remember walking out and realizing, oh my God, oh my God, I don't have to drink anymore. This is great. You know, and I still had a couple more rowdy years in my twenties, but oh man, I, I, I'm with you. I, I really don't drink much anymore. And I, I like feeling good. I like waking up feeling good, you know, which leads me to my next question, uh, you know, about your body. Let's talk about your body, Tommy. Sure. So, so you're about 51 years old now and you, you know, you ski raced really hard for, you know, 20 plus years. You've been free skiing hard for a lot of years. How's your body holding up? It's holding up great. It's holding up great. I had uh, ACL reconstructions on both knees, uh, one from racing and then one from free skiing. And I still stay in super good shape, mostly from mountain biking in the summer. I, I, my knees don't really enjoy to run. So I just cycle a bunch and, and uh, try to do as many different sports as I can with my kids, you know, the wake surfing and the foil boarding and water skiing and mountain biking and hiking. So I stay in pretty good shape. As you know, we all get a little bit older and you start getting a little bit of back fat and <laughs> things start kind of drooping a little bit, call it the old getting fat, gray and bald kind of thing. <laughs> I'm but there. I, uh, I'm already yeah, there. I feel, I feel good though. It's like 
until I look in the mirror and see some gray hair and whatnot, I'm like, damn, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm still pretty fit. And my body's doing really well though. I, uh, you know, I, like I said, I do a ton of mountain biking and, and try to try to eat well, you know, a lot of salad and a lot of vegetables, a lot of fruits. And it's just, Smart. it's all part of it, you know, staying hydrated. There's so many cool little snacks that you can eat now that keep your energy going during the day. And I just, try to eat somewhat healthy. You know, I can put anything I want pretty much in this body and, and I'll burn right through it. And I just try to stay as, as healthy as I can. And, and, you know, it's hard when you're skiing in the winter and, and you end up eating pizza for lunch, but that's normal. And, you know, just keep, keep the motor going, you know, with, with what you can and, and, uh, try to stay, try to stay in decent shape. I think it's important to do some, a lot of more stretching as I get older. Like I have these foam rollers, so I love getting on the floor and just kind of stretching out my hips and my quads and especially yes. my back, just kind of rolling it out. And if you stretch out your hips a lot, oftentimes and on the floor and, and even after skiing, almost like yoga type stuff. I think that's really good for longevity. I got the Theragun now too. It's like massage. I use that thing like crazy now. And if you haven't tried that yet, get one, man. It's changed my life. Oh yeah. The Theragun, Travis yeah. Rice, uh, he, he, he gave me one up at the lodge and those things are awesome. They're yeah. almost too, almost too much sometimes. Yeah. You got to find the right setting. That's for sure. But, but yeah, I, but I the, live by that thing now, but the uh, Theragun, you know, you get it right on your IT band. Ooh. Yeah. And just hammer the IT band on your legs. And, uh, I think stretching and, and staying fit and even riding a bike indoors is super good just to kind of get the, you know, the lactate out of your muscles after a big day hiking. Cause we talked about it earlier a little bit, like when I was on the U S ski team, we often overtrained, which was just yeah, work hard ethic, more, more, you know, you got to keep lifting weights. And, and uh, now I guess a lot of those top performers on the world cup, they'll go on snow and, and, you know, do four or five super hard runs. And then in the afternoon, it's pretty much just cycling and stretching, just recovery mode. So smart. Um, yeah. I think that's awesome for, for a lot of the newer athletes just to, you know, kind of read what your body's telling you and uh, try not to overdo it. Thank you for that. Um, you know, earlier, I forgot to ask you a question that I, I think is just such a fun question for our listeners. So what's your favorite book or books? Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. I think, uh, I think my favorite book is Touching the Void. Oh, okay. Yeah. Tell us more because not everybody knows that one. Touching the Void. It's about the two climbers down in South America. They're on some giant peak. I think Bolivia, right? Yeah. Climbing up. They made a movie about it. And the story is awesome because the guy ended up falling. One of the partners fell on the rope and it was pulling the other guy off the mountain and he ended up having to cut the rope Wow! and let his buddy fall to what he presumed was his death. And then, you know, the guy climbed the mountain, got off the mountain at least, and then went back to his camp. And, uh, like two days later, the, his, his partner came crawling back into the camp and was all beat up, but survived. And, uh, love that story. Just, yeah. you know, with all the mountaineering stories that are out there between, uh, you know, Alex Honnold climbing mountains and, and, you know, just, I love those, those climbing stories where you, you know, they're out, out in the elements, whether it's on Denali or, you know, some Mount Everest. I just love the the fact that you have to like survive when you're in the mountains and, and, you know, I'm not a hardcore rock climber or, or climber by any means, but I've climbed the Grand Teton a couple of times and 
Nice. I haven't skied it yet, but I've skied most of the Tetons. I love ski mountaineering. I've done some crazy routes here in the Tetons. And, um, you know, anytime you ski down a run and have to repel a little ways to get over a cliff, it's pretty exciting. Absolutely. Ter- and terrifying. Yeah, I've, I've done just a little more than I am comfortable with a few times out there. But highly recommended book as well. Touching the Void, Blow Your Mind. The last question here. What's next for you, Tommy? What's next for you in your life's journey? I think the next uh, next chapter is um, with my kids and my family here in Wyoming. My daughters are uh, Taylor's in eighth grade and little Taryn, the younger one, is in sixth. So I'm going to keep having as much fun with those little rugrats as I can, you know, at the ski club. And and they're really good soccer players. Wow. One of my younger, younger daughter right now is uh, she's down in Florida. She made the Olympic development. Um, Whoa, congratulations. Yeah, she's she's doing really good with it. That's and nuts. Uh, so she's down in Florida today doing some ODP, we call it, Olympic Development Program. And uh, I'm just going to keep guiding and keep learning, keep training. I think the biggest thing for me is is staying, staying in the mountains, guiding guests, you know, skiing with my family, having good days, having bad days, you know, staying positive. I think that's super important. Um, I've always been optimistic about conditions and uh being patient as you know in alaska is always important very important the next chapter the next chapter is just to keep doing what i'm doing i'm i'm definitely you know over 50 now so i call it the backside of the mountain (laughs) well you made it you made it clean man good for you i'm on the the backside a little bit here now so i'm going to keep riding it and looking for good snow and uh keep my eye on the ball for sure tommy that's all i've got for you man do you have anything else you'd like to add here at the end of the show I think it's important to keep reading the forecasts and watching the weather and, 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 uh, you know, stay in shape, take care of your equipment. Uh, you know, your skis are tools, not jewels, right? Miles, you hit a lot of oh, rocks man. out there. <laughs> I, I, I went through about four pairs of skis last year. Remember I ended up, I had an orange one and a yellow one for a while. I'd broken one of each, put two together. Yeah. Stay a, light. Yeah. Stay light on your feet. And, uh, you know, I, I, I need to take some tips from you, man. Keep dancing around in the mountains, having a good time. That's what it's all about. And uh, I love, you know, I, I love skiing and I still have that anxiety a little bit before the winter where I'm just like kind of fired up because I love the early season skiing because you're so fired up about it. Usually in March and April, everything's just kind of more uh, autopilot, you know, or satisfied. But, yeah, I'm kind of satisfied. But again, early season is always a blast because you're, you're getting your equipment dialed in and, and looking for the snow to kind of fall and, and, and just getting out there and ripping with your buddies, whether it's on hard pack or groomer or even some power or some early season conditions, just go out there and have fun and get the dust off and, and uh, stay stoked. Love it, Tommy. Tommy, it was great talking to you today. I hugely appreciate you. Thanks a ton for being here. And I very much look forward to seeing you and skiing with you in Jackson soon. Tommy, (laughs) thanks again, man. I appreciate you. Have a great rest of the day. All right, you too. Thanks a lot, Miles. Good luck this season. Thank you so much for listening to the Snowbrains podcast. If you liked this podcast, please share with your friends and family and please subscribe. To find out more about Snowbrains, please visit us at snowbrains.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Snowbrains. Today's Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Scott Sports. Looking to test the boundaries but fearful of high-risk situations? Scott Sports knows the danger. That's why they've developed the Patrol E1 Avalanche Backpack, which is what I personally use in the backcountry. 
It's the ultimate free skiing avalanche backpack, pushing the boundaries of innovation. The supercapacitor technology, along with exceptional design, results in one of the lightest electric airbag backpacks on the market to date. To learn more, go to scottsports.com. Today's Snow Brains podcast is brought to you by Tamarack Resort. You might come to Tamarack for the views that unfold across the valley or the unspoiled terrain in vast open bowls. Maybe you'll come to uncover a place that's a little different, that's down to earth and at home on the path less traveled. But we know you'll come back because there's a community of people at Tamarack who make you feel like you're in the right place at the right time. This episode of the Snow Brains podcast was edited by Jared White. Music by Chad Crouch. And I'm your host, producer, and creator, Miles Clark.